Hi, I'm Peter Mabley, and this is the American Social History Podcast. American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. How do we remember history? Whose history do we memorialize? And how do we construct this narrative, both in the academy and for public audiences? In today's episode, Professor Jack Chen, cultural historian and director of the Clement Price Institute on Ethnicity, Culture, and the Modern Experience at Rutgers University, Newark, addresses these questions. Chen describes how we commemorate certain peoples, specifically in New York City and its environs, an area historically and culturally grounded in dispossession, enslavement, segregation, and exclusion. His work engages obscured and forgotten histories, those that were raised during his involvement with the New York City Mayor's Commission on Monuments. This talk is part of our public history lecture series, Difficult Histories, Public Spaces, The Challenge of Monuments in New York City and the Nation. This series is funded by a grant from Humanities New York and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our final speaker is Jack Chen, who was a member of the New York City Mayor's Commission on Monuments and is a professor at Rutgers University now. Professor Chen was the founding director of the Asian Pacific American Studies Program and Institute at New York University and was part of the original founding faculty of the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU. He co-founded the Museum of Chinese in America in 1980, in 1979 and 1980, where he continues to serve as a senior historian. He is also the author of the award-winning book, New York Before Chinatown, Orientalism and the Shaping of American Culture, uh, 1976 to 1882, uh, published in 2001. Thank you, Jack. Well, good evening. Um, I wanted to um, talk about the, the formation of a new project that I'll talk a little bit about in a short while. It's called the New York Newark Public History Project. It comes directly out of the process of the commission in which Darren Walker asked uh, myself and two other members, Audra Simpson and also Mabel O. Wilson, who are both Columbia faculty, to form a new organization that deals with questions that we're raising during the commission itself. And I'll get back to that commission in a second. Uh, we, were, we were consistently talking about how the immigrant history, the pluralist history of the city, has to be grounded in a deeper historical reality, which is really the history of dispossession and enslavement. And without that kind of anchoring and grounding, in fact, this idea of just adding more and more to kind of, uh, with the kind of uh, notion of this pluralistic, everything goes, let's just add more monuments, let's not take anything down, or maybe let's put some interpretive information around some of the problematic ones, that logic actually falls apart very quickly. So let me just give you a little bit of pre, that's, that's the, I'm gonna end with that, but I also wanna make sure that I don't run out of time to really just talk about that a little bit more. I should say that um, in, 
co-founding the Museum of Chinese in America and working downtown before I became an academic for a number of years, it became very clear that what New York City has imagined the civic culture and the public culture to be is also a culture that has been deeply segregated and deeply exclusionary. Now, I think it's important, for example, for me to just say that the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, there's a documentary that we worked on just recently that appeared last spring, existed from 1882, technically it was repealed in 1943, but it effectively continued until 1965-68. So it wasn't until Margaret Chin, who supported the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, until she was elected to represent the Chinatown Tribeca area that we had our first city council person, right? So who counts as being part of the civic culture? Who's making decisions, as Michelle was talking about, are things that are living today. They're not abstractions. And the ongoing impacts of segregation, exclusion, enslavement, and dispossession are still within our streets and within our region. But in fact, that denial and that obliviousness to that, I believe, are are a source of lots of difficulties that we have as a general public to reckon with things like global climate changing, recognizing that we're in this massive estuarial area that was one time was incredibly prosperous and has been wrecked very badly, right? So there are lots of things that are hard for us to acknowledge. And these are all questions of how do we think about history? Whose history is it? And how is history constructed, both in academic terms, but also in the public way? And I know there are a number of people who are in this audience, and of course the American History Project have been working on these issues for many, many decades. So I am kind of adding my comments as part of that kind of larger effort. I think it's really important to kind of, when we talk about civic culture and public culture, where we're really recognizing that there are many groups who, who became where the money was and, and became established the civic organizations and established the museums. And I should just, you know, it, it's common knowledge that uh, many of them were kind of Protestant and white and made certain kinds of decisions on behalf of what they considered to be the norms. And those who were outside of the norms, including Jews and Catholics, Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, uh, heathens, um, savages, heathens, Chinese savages, Native Americans, et cetera, et cetera, right, were really not considered part of that public culture, nor part of the civic culture. And they were really outside of those boundaries. Now, it's not to say that folks didn't get involved and weren't contesting those categories. That was happening consistently throughout. But the existence of Chinatown is not because of some simple clannishness of Chinese. It's really because of the exclusion laws, uh, from my point of view. So how do we understand the spatiality and the, and the kind of way the city is organized? It's not some kind of natural evolutionary process. It's fraught with issues of power and wealth, segregation, othering, and how things are organized. So it may surprise you that I've decided not to talk about Chinatown, um, which would be, in some ways, I think, for many years, many decades, that's kind of what I've been focusing on. But in the pursuit of understanding and unpacking the history and being on the commission, it became very clear that, yes, I could have advocated for some monuments in Chinatown, and you know we could make that argument, or Asian American monuments, and kind of address some of the questions I've just raised. But it became very clear that of the four case studies of Patan, the marker in the so-called Canyon of Heroes, of uh, J. Marion Sims, of Teddy Roosevelt in front of the Museum of American Museum of Natural History and also Columbus Circle, that there were deeper issues at stake here 
that were not being addressed. So a number of us began kind of trying to raise those issues. And I guess I would quickly kind of uh, fast forward and say that there was a collapse of the process. Um, I'm someone who has built organizations. I believe in organizations. And I believe in processes uh, that are engaging, participatory, uh, dialogic, performative, uh, that are genuinely inclusive um, as a way of kind of deepening uh, participatory democracy. And those processes have to be inculcated from the very beginning, whether it's a city commission or other kinds of processes in terms of organizations, or else the tendency is for these, for, for exclusions to happen and for, for these things to collapse within their own weight. So, and I just want to kind of mention, really to kind of step back a little bit, to say that I think those of us who have been involved in this kind of work for, for decades recognize that there's an infrastructure that's necessary for those publics and those, those communities and those experiences that have not been represented. It's not simply a matter of getting more books out there. It's a matter also of people getting PhDs, um, oftentimes from those groups, representing interests that oftentimes were not being expressed by the dominant curriculum of universities from city college to private universities, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really a more subtle process as well. And I would just suggest that this contestation of history of monuments also relies on an infrastructure that is oftentimes really deeply invisible from uh, what we talk about, but in fact are fundamental to the process of how decisions are actually made. So I'll just cite, for example, Michel Rolfe Trujillo's a classic book, Silencing the Past, uh, Power and the Production of History. You can just tell from the title of what he's kind of unpacking there. And I'll just point to the, in the introduction, I encourage you to look at it, in which he's talking about four elements that really uh, make up the construction of capital H history. One of them, and, and we could say then counter histories, uh, also could be understood this way, but maybe in a more complex way, that uh, the four elements are facts, formation of facts, how facts oftentimes are contextualized within archives or collections or assemblages, and that those archives and facts then oftentimes will become in various ways the sources of various kinds of stories, whether it be the purchase of Manhattan, which has been still oddly a dominant story, even though the scholarship, the facts and the archives have, have come to kind of disrupt it. Uh, and, but it's still commonly told in the public arena. So if you go down to Battery Park, you see the plaque that the that the Netherlands, you know, had established in a flagpole, but also the public monuments that are surrounding that whole area tell a very different story that people don't usually have the background and the information to be, be contesting and, and tell a different story. And then besides the stories, it, then all three of these in parsed in different ways, organized in different ways, begin to kind of formulate a history. Now, part of what I'm suggesting is that there are structures there are collections, there is ability to build a collection and archives that then begins to become the source in which uh, PhDs, students who are increasingly admitted into the universities. You know, we, we still, I mean, I'm old enough to hear stories of the very first Jewish professor who was hired at NYU, for example, and we can certainly know of the first woman professor hired in the history department. I mean, these are not such long ago stories, right? And I think this audience is 
perhaps old enough to, to kind of remember those stories themselves. I think a lot of our students actually don't remember those moments, right? But those are very recent contestations over whose history is it, who's writing history, and these are part of, we could talk about the new social history and the new cultural history work. So these are background elements that are absolutely critical for our ability to even talk about who can be part of a civic organization and be, gain the expertise of various kinds of people in the process um, to have a chance of, get, of getting something on there. Now, I'm not saying that's strictly the process, but for me, it's not so much a question of who decides on monuments, because that, in some ways, is less important to me than who's actually in the fight for producing new histories, especially those histories that have been minoritized and marginalized and really not part of this equation at all. So how do we actually build curriculum? How do we build archives? How do we build organizations that actually can represent these kinds of interests? So then, if we're to talk about the Mayor's Commission, I can say that you know, it was a 90-day process. Uh, we got a call in the very late part of the summer asking us if we'd be willing to serve. Um, I, w I was delighted to be on it because Harry Belafonte was one of the members, and I just love Harry Belafonte. And uh, it was a very interesting commission, but I have to say 90 days is not enough to have five hearings and to have only three meetings, and the meetings were not that long. So by the time we made the decisions and recommendations, the formulation, we only had like an hour and a half left of the meeting time, and we extended it. But the process was flawed, I have to say. And it was, it was clipped, and it was a problem. Now, I should say that the beginning of the process wasn't bad. Um, it was a, a, a consensus-making process at the very first meeting. And we talked about what are some of the guidelines that all future monuments, and indeed some of the past monuments, should be measured against. These guidelines are kind of interesting. Now, I'm not going to read them verbatim. I'll just give you kind of a concise uh, description of them. But this becomes really part of the process of how decision-making can happen, and this came out of the commission itself. I think this is probably the most important thing that came out of the commission, but I think if you were to read any coverage of it, you really won't see any evidence of these guidelines. Let me just quickly go over them. One is reckoning with power to represent history in public, recognizing that the ability to represent histories in public is not only a matter of accuracy, it is a powerful tool, reckoning with the inequity and injustice while looking to a just future. Okay, and we, we ordered these in the way that the committee had agreed on. Historical understanding, respect for and commitment to in-depth and nuanced histories affirms the subjectivities of people in the city. And acknowledging multiple perspectives, we are producing histories that previously had not been privileged. Inclusion, creating conditions for all New Yorkers to feel welcome in New York City's public spaces and to have a voice in the public processes by which monuments and markers are included in such public spaces. Complexity, acknowledging layered and evolving narratives represented in New York City's public spaces with preference for relational and intersectional approaches over subtractive ones. Now, the language was debated there because it was meant to be additive, and we really debated whether additive really could simply be juxtaposed against sub subtractive, right? So we're trying to give it more 
weight by talking about relational and intersectional approaches over subtractive ones. Monuments and markers have multiple meanings, ones that are difficult to unravel and often impossible to settle on a single agreed-upon meaning. Justice, recognizing the erasure embedded in the city's collection of monuments and markers, addressing histories of dispossession, enslavement, and discrimination not adequately represented in the current public landscape, and actualize a form of representational equity. So those were the guidelines, but then, when it came to that very last meeting and that last hour and a half, we had no time to talk about the four, the four test cases. If you were to divide that up, we roughly had maybe 15 minutes to talk about the Canyon of Heroes Patin piece. And there the issue became, uh, how much time do I have? Because I want to make sure I can, am I doing okay or? I have two more minutes. Okay, well, I will not tell you about Patan. I will not tell you about <laughs> Sims because you know the outcome of that. Um, and, you know, we discussed a range of strategies. But uh, I should just say that I voted for the removal of Columbus and I voted for the removal of Teddy Roosevelt. Now, given those criteria, we did not have a time to consistently talk about all four of those monuments and markers. And that, to me, as a historian who's been working a lot on eugenics, and how eugenics came to come to be at the central core of much of progressivist policy and also progressive movement, where experts are asked to intervene in certain kinds of ways. And how that ongoing legacy of eugenics, to me, has to frame the understanding of these four sites. And unless we can grapple with that, unless we can talk about them carefully and systematically, it becomes a rather uh, it, it becomes a, a set of decisions that are based on who is more organized to actually take away and who is more organized to keep it there and what are the monuments that are actually harder to grapple with because they stand at the core of the historical civic culture of, of the city and they, they represent the greatest interests. Now, I should just finish by saying that the, um, that so what we've done is Darren Walker asked three of us to form this new organization and for me, part of what has to happen now is that the Lenape, who have been pushed out of this region and scattered to many different places in North America, need to be back involved in decision-making about what happens. And many Native peoples, many Native New Yorkers, we have the largest urban Native American population in North America, they need to be involved. And many of them have said, we don't actually want a monument. What we want are we want spaces in which we can thrive culturally, educationally, historically, and present these stories on our own terms. I think that has to be taken seriously. But we are bringing together for the first time, really, with their, with their support and their agreement, 16 to 20 Native American Lenape leaders who are representing different nations and groups including Canada, including parts of the upper tier Midwest, um, and some who are still in the Jersey area, together to actually uh, ask for their guidance about how to proceed on these kinds of questions. Now, that's, that Native Americans and Lenape in particular, whom New Yorkers really don't really talk about at all, we barely know about it, um, have to be uh, brought to that basic foundational level of the discussion that's going on. It turns out that Staten Island is actually a very key, very important uh, area 
uh, for Lenape peoples, and we could talk about that more. But let me just finish on that count, that uh, there will be a major, the first ever United Lenape powwow as a public event, which has a symposium, which in which a number of these leaders will be speaking at on Sunday, November the 18th. And we're having several days of, uh, of a gathering that is really a closed door gathering in which we're taking um, these, uh, these leaders uh, around the region and uh, asking for their, um, what they want us to do uh, with the research that we've done. So this has nothing to do with Chinese Americans, but it is foundational, I think, to the question of what does it mean to be a New Yorker and from New York and in the lands and waters of Lenape Hoking that were never legally transferred and, and uh, has to be part of the historical reckoning that all New Yorkers really need to make. So thank you. Thank you.